Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal to... A look at the legal system. And you, a special podcast of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Farah, if you rent an apartment from me and you're a week paying rent, can I move all of your stuff out in the front yard? I don't think so, but we're going to find out the answer to that on today's episode. Renting has become more a fact of life than it used to be. There are more U.S. households headed by renters now than at any point since 1965. How many is that? That's one in three households. And for those younger than age 35, two out of three households are rented. So today, we're going to explore the rights that renters have and the responsibilities of landlords. We have Austin Fax, an associate with Lothar Johnson in Springfield, where he handles cases involving real estate and property law, as well as landlord-tenant and creditor's rights. Austin, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Bob and Farah. I'm excited to talk a little bit about real estate and a little bit about uh, landlord-tenant law today. Excellent. So we wanted to start off with um, asking you, essentially, what are some of the rights that renters or tenants enjoy? If I'm going to rent a property, what are some protections that are in place for me? So that's probably the biggest question I get asked in, in when I'm dealing with tenants is, what, what are my rights? What are my what are my obligations uh, to my landlord? Um, the biggest answer I have is they're usually outlined in your lease agreement. That's the place you always want to start to look at. Uh, but other than your lease agreement, it used to be way, way back in the day at common law, it was caveat emptor. It was a system of kind of buyer beware. You took the property as you found it. Uh, over the years, the law kind of developed and we, we, Ended up with some some law some uh, rights for tenants that we would read into a residential lease, even if they're not found within the lease. Uh, the two biggest ones that we talk about all the time are the covenant of quiet enjoyment, which is you have the right to peacefully and quietly enjoy the entirety of your leasehold property, and so that keeps the landlord from taking any action to, say, constructively evict you um, if there's a portion of the property that they're not allowing you access to, you, they can't do that, such as if there's like a shed or something that they've not allowed you keys to. The covenant of quiet enjoyment, whether it's written into the lease or not, would protect the tenant's rights on that front. And then the biggest thing that tenants enjoy at common law, which kind of developed through the years, is an implied warranty within lease called the warranty of habitability. And that warranty, whether it's written into your lease or not, uh, provides protections for tenants that the landlord warrants that the property is free from defects that would materially affect the life, health, or safety of the tenant. Um, so if you've got you know no hot water or if you've got a condition within the property, dead, say deadly mold, or any other condition in the property that would affect your life, health, or safety, the landlord has to fix that. And that's whether it's, it's written within your lease or not. But other than a few of those implied either covenants or warranties that we put in the lease, other than and those few uh, warranties or covenants, it, it's just going to come down to a question of what does your lease provide for what your rights are as a tenant. When you talk about quiet enjoyment, does that mean that, that, that nobody else close to you can play their television set too loudly or, or practice their drums? <laughs> or have a party. Have a party. <laughs> you got to fight! Uh, 
Uh, sometimes tennis would wish that's the case. It's more of a question of do you have quiet enjoyment of the property? And, and we're not talking about noise level. <laughs> Although if there is a tenant or someone else that's across the way that is having loud parties, there might be some sort of nuisance action you may have against them. But it's really, when we talk about quiet enjoyment, it's really a right against your landlord to make sure that they're not constructively evicting you or keeping you from a portion of your property. So while we, while we may wish that that neighbor across the way keeps his music down, that may not necessarily mean that the landlords breached the covenant of quiet enjoyment. What, what do you mean by constructive eviction? So if there is something that a landlord has done, whether that's, uh, say, uh, locking you out of a portion of your property or whether that is he has taken an action to keep you from uh, enjoying a part of your leasehold, um, whether that's he is now doing construction, say, on a certain portion of the property, or whether he is taking, uh, even to go even further, whether he's taking an action such as coming into your apartment at a, inappropriate hours or something like that that constructively evicts you from a portion of your of your property. It's not a physical eviction, right? So he's not coming in and grabbing you by the collar and actually throwing you out of your property. But if there's something that the landlord does that is so obnoxious or so intrusive that you literally cannot use a portion of your property, that might rise to the level of constructive eviction. Um, constructive eviction is, is a difficult area of the law. I, I would advise people that if you're dealing with a situation you think might rise to the level of constructive eviction, you probably are to the point where you need to talk to an attorney about what your rights are moving forward. Well, I was going to ask you what the remedy is for that. Well, the remedy for constructive eviction, and again, I, I, this is the, the attorney answer for everything, is you need to probably talk to an attorney before you take action on your own. Um, if you're constructively evicted from the property, it's as if you don't have a property right to that. So, for instance, let's go back to that warranty of habitability. Um, if the landlord does do something that, you know, that, that they leave the property in such a condition that materially affects your life or health or safety, there is a way that you can withhold rent from that landlord. I wouldn't advise doing it if you're a tenant without legal representation or without the legal knowledge necessary. But there is a way that you can withhold your rent and there is a way that you can demand that the landlord fix whatever it is that is constructively evicting you or whatever it is that's breaching the warranty of habitability and that differs in situations where uh, either there's a lawsuit filed against you or whether you're trying to do so preemptively um, that's why I always tell people it's best to get legal advice moving forward on that topic. If you have you mentioned earlier, maybe the hot water isn't working or there's a repair that needs to be made. Is there a certain time frame in which the landlord is expected to repair that? So the law on that issue is that the landlord is expected to repair or whatever it is that you're dealing with within a reasonable time frame. Now, what is a reasonable time frame? That's a good question. Um, it's really going to depend on... And that's ultimately a question for the fact finder. So if you're before a jury, it's the question of what the jury believes is reasonable. In most of these types of cases, the fact finder in your case is a judge. 
So it's a question of what does the judge believe is reasonable uh, given all of the circumstances. And I tell people with stuff like hot water, when I'm advising landlords, it's do the best you can to get it back on as quickly as possible. Um, When I'm advising tenants, it's a question of, well, what are all the circumstances? Because really it is a case-by-case basis of, well, how long does it take for them to get a repairman out there? Is it reasonable that the repairman was on vacation for a week and that they took a little while longer? Uh, it's a real case-by-case basis. So some of those are real fluid and real moving. And um, it, it's really diff- it, it's more difficult to advise a tenant on that issue, I guess, than it is to advise a landlord. Uh, but the standard is it must be done, must be fixed within a reasonable period of time. Okay. I remember when I rented and having to come up with security deposits <laughs> um, mm-hmm. in addition to typically the first month and sometimes last month's rent. Um, what's reasonable for security deposit? I see a lot of security deposits that are first and last month's rent. Um And at the very least, I tell landlords that you probably want to do at least one month's rent so that if that tenant on the last month of their lease decides to skip out on their obligations, you at the very least have that one month to cover. Um, The law provides that if you request and require more than two months rent, it's actually illegal. There's a Missouri statute on that that says the landlord cannot request and require more than two months rent. But I tell my landlords, you know, at least one month, usually two months. But that can that is one of the areas that when we're dealing with residential leases can a lot of times be a discussion point between landlords and tenants um, as to what they are willing to give and what they're willing to require as far as as security deposits are concerned. If I have pets, I know that oftentimes the security deposit tends to be a little bit more and they say that you won't get that portion <clears throat> back. Um, mm-hmm. Is that does that still have to adhere to that two-month limit? So pet deposits are treated by the law as separately than security deposits. So they are not governed by the statute I was referencing earlier was 535-300. Pet deposits are not governed by that statute, whereas security deposits are. Um, in Missouri, a landlord does have the ability to require a pet deposit above and beyond any two-month requirement for two-month of rent requirement for security deposit, and the landlord does have the ability to make that uh, non-refundable. So the scenario that you threw out is is fairly common when you're talking about landlords and, and requiring pet deposits. And, and that makes sense, too. When you have a pet in the property, the landlord needs to protect their property interest. Um, there's always a chance that the pet can, you know, destroy property or even if it's the best pet. And, uh, you know, I have two dogs of my own, um, but sometimes they can they can be a nuisance and they can destroy property. And, and it makes sense that the law wants to protect the landlord in that regard. And does anyone ever get their deposit back? I remember I would be excited if I got like $50 back. (laughs) Well, you know, I see it fairly frequently. Um, I see, uh, especially the good tenants, I see a lot of times get their deposits back. Usually when 
I get called into the scenario when I get a landlord that calls me or a tenant that calls me, something's usually gone wrong at that point. Um, so we're not dealing with something where they've been a great model tenant and they've cleaned everything and the carpet's in spotless condition and they're getting money back. Usually we're dealing with someone's not paying rent or someone has broken a door or something of that nature. So usually when I get involved, it's not a question of are they going to get their security deposit back, but it's usually something more than that. But a lot of times, you know, when it's just a general landlord-tenant relationship, I do have a lot of landlords that do give security deposits back. So it's something that I think they see probably more frequently than I do. If I'm a landlord, though, and somebody moves out and leaves the place in pretty bad shape that exceeds the value of the security deposit, do I have any right to go back to those people and demand that they pay me more to repair the damage that they did while they were there? Sure, absolutely. Um, If you're a landlord, obviously your obligations for the security deposit are actually governed by that same statute that we talked about earlier, 535-300. There are only the few certain categories that you can use that security deposit to remedy. Uh, One is tenant's default in the payment of rent. Two is to restore the dwelling unit to its condition at the commencement of the tenancy, um, absent ordinary wear and tear. And three is to compensate the landlord for actual damages sustained as a result of the tenant's failure to give adequate notice to terminate the tenancy. Um, Other than that, you can't actually withhold a security deposit for any other reason. If, for whatever reason, the say the property's trashed and the the repairs to the landlord are going to go above and beyond what would typically be required for that security deposit, there's nothing that keeps the landlord from demanding from the tenant at their new address that they make whole or make restitution for their damages. And you can also, you know, after the fact, after you've applied that security deposit, if they refuse to play ball, you can always file a lawsuit. We were talking at the beginning of the show of how many people are running today. It's the most ever since 1965 in the United States. Um, If someone's thinking about getting into this market um, to become a landlord, what are some of the risks, but what are some of the rewards as well that they should think about? Sure. Well, I I have landlord tenants who talk to me all the time about how it can be rewarding to be the person in charge. When you have good tenants, it's always great to, you know, you get to hear their stories. You get to help them through with their residency. There's, I mean, uh, from what I hear, that's a very rewarding process. I don't own properties myself, but I deal with a lot, a lot of people who do, and they say it's very rewarding. And of course, probably the most rewarding part of that as a landlord is you can make a lot of money off your investment properties. Um, Some of the risks as a landlord is obviously if someone is renting your property, they're in control of it and you own it. So (laughs) if they're doing damage or, or anything happens to the property, you can come after them at some later date to try and get your money back. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if something goes wrong, if something is damaged or destroyed, if someone gets hurt, there's a possibility that you can be on the hook for that as a landlord. Um, now, there are more detailed rules regarding you know people getting hurt. But at the end of the day, that is your biggest risk is that if something goes wrong with that property, if something needs fixed or if something needs changed, you can always go after the tenant for the damage they caused or what they're responsible for, but there's no guarantee that you can you can get payment from them. And at the at the end of the day, you're le- you may be stuck holding that bill. So that's probably the biggest risk that landlords have to deal with. 
Suppose you have a tenant who's running a criminal enterprise in your property, uh, cooking meth or, or, or peddling drugs or something like that. That strikes me as having a special part of the law that involves protecting you, prosecuting them. But can can you can the authorities basically take your property away from you under forfeiture laws if if there's something going on in that property? Well. Uh, and that's a little bit outside of the criminal area is a little yeah. bit outside of my area of expertise. But I will say with respect to if there's a criminal enterprise or something like that, um, say a meth lab being run on your property, Missouri does have a real specialized area, niche area of law uh, for expedited evictions. It's found in Chapter uh, 441 of our, our revised statutes. Um, and it basically, if there is a drug-related or a criminal activity that's threatening the life, health, safety of, of other tenants or other individuals, or if the scenario you gave, if people are running drugs or running meth out of the property, the law does give the landlord the ability to file an expedited eviction to get those type of criminals out of their property quickly uh, before they're able to do uh, damage that's really irreparable to the property. Um, it's not, in my experience, I've had, you know, a bunch of those type of evictions. It's still not as fast as we want it, uh, but in that case, it is the best we have, and it is expedited. Um, and it does, the law does do its best to try and protect landlords' rights with respect to that regard. You talked about this special type of eviction, but how does a normal eviction work? And at what point can a landlord um, initiate that process? Sure. So when we're talking about evictions, it's important to really delineate what it is that we're, we're discussing. So there, uh, a tenant can be evicted for a number of reasons. Um, anything, the most common one we see, obviously, is non-payment of rent. But anything else from a breach, a material breach of the lease, if there's a provision of the lease that uh, the landlord is repeatedly dealing with that's not been enforced, that can be a reason for an eviction that a court can find so long as it's a material breach of the lease. Or if there's something like a holdover tenant on the property, um, that can be another reason for eviction or e even something dealing with squatters on the property. That can be a reason for an eviction. So there are different judicial remedies for different types of evictions. Um, the most common one we see is when, obviously, the tenant stops paying rent. There's a special statute, a chapter in the Missouri statutes called Chapter 535 that deals specifically with the procedure for when a tenant stops paying rent. It is an expedited procedure. It's not as expedited as the um, drug-related evictions that we talked about earlier, but it does provide for what people who practice in this area of law call a rocket docket. It's not small claims court, which a lot of people think it is, but it is, uh, it's an, a lawsuit that gets filed in the associate division of the circuit court, and it provides for a trial for the landlord or the tenant on the first available trial setting after the return date, if there's any dispute. So it's a good way to get, um, you know, when, when there's a dispute revol revolving rent, those get remedied fairly quickly. Uh, but like I said, it's a rent and possession action. The Chapter 535 action is the most common action that we see for landlords. If I'm evicted for not paying my rent, can they lock me out and the landlord keep my stuff if I haven't moved it out before that eviction date? 
Yeah, so we try and discourage people from using what's called self-help. Um, your landlord usually shouldn't come into your property prior to a judicial eviction and throw you out of the property, like I said earlier, grab them by the collar and throw you out and then change the locks. Um, if your landlord does that without a judicial uh, sanction that says they can, they can be liable for what's called a forcible entry and detainer, which is not usually a good thing for a landlord. Um, usually what you're dealing with when you're talking about an eviction is you want to go through the legal process. You don't want to resort to self-help. If you're a landlord, you typically want to file a petition. There's a return date which means that both parties have to appear in front of a judge in whatever county the property is located. At that point, the judge will figure out whether there's a dispute as to whether rent is owed or not, or whether there are any defenses to the lawsuit, say, like we talked about earlier, the warranty of habitability. Um, if there's not, it will typically get resolved on that return date. If there is, the judge will typically set it for a quick trial, um, and the judge will make a determination, like any other trial, as to whether a judgment is to be entered in favor of the landlord or to be entered in favor of the tenant. Um, if you're a landlord and you have a judge enter judgment in your favor, um, that will typically be a judgment for restitution of possession of the property. So that once you get that judgment entered... And again, this is one of those areas where we say you should probably consult legal representation if you're having to go through this avenue because you're not in small claims court. There are carefully delineated rules. Um, but just generally speaking, once you get that judgment, you can typically file a, an, an execution sending that judgment to the sheriff of whatever county the property is located in. And the sheriff will typically go out and post the property and will assist in a court-sanctioned ex uh, eviction of the property, if that makes sense. So that's we try and tell our landlords, avoid the use of self-help, go through the judicial process, and once you get that judgment, have the sheriff accompany you out there. And then once the eviction actually occurs, once the sheriff has gone out there to accompany you to execute on the property, then once the tenant's out and once their stuff is removed, then you can feel free to change the locks or do whatever it is that you need to do to secure that property. If you're, if you're a renter and uh, you decide you want to fix a leaking faucet in your, in your sink, can you deduct that from your rent at the end of the month? Typically, the first thing you want to do if you're a renter is to make a demand that your landlord do that. I, when I'm dealing with tenants, I suggest um, that you, you first resort to making your landlord fix the leaky sink before you take, take any help on your end. Um, there is technically a Missouri statute, it's 441.234, that provides a, a very detailed mechanism by which a tenant can make their own repairs um, and then deduct that from the rent. Um, the tenant has to have been on the property for at least six months. They have to have paid all rent up until that point. They have There has to have been no previous lease violations, and there has to be no previous breaches for the tenant to avail themselves to that protection. Um, if, there, if all of those requirements are met, then there's demand requirements that they must formally make on the landlord to make the repairs. If those demand requirements are not met, 
then the tenant can go forth with making their own repairs and deducting from the rent. Um, again, it's not something I would advise that a tenant do without either consulting with an attorney or at the very least reviewing that statute to go through these specific notice requirements. But I guess the answer to the question is yes, there is technically a remedy. If your landlord, for whatever reason, refuses to play ball and refuses to make repairs to the property, there are remedies available for the tenant to, to deduct and withhold rent. Um, it's just a, a kind of a difficult process to go through. But just out of common courtesy, it's a good idea to call the landlord first. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and you know, in my experience, we're not dealing with landlords who are typically malicious and they say, ha ha, you know, you've got a, a, a leaky faucet. There's no way I'm fixing that. Usually the landlord has an interest in fixing the property up just as the tenant does, because at the end of the day, the landlord obviously owns the property. Now, of course, we wouldn't need attorneys if there weren't exceptions to that general rule. There are sometimes some bad landlords or some bad tenants, um, and we have to deal with those issues as they come. But generally speaking, most of the time, landlords are, are going to be wanting to make those repairs because it's their property. They're wanting to protect their property, just like you're wanting repairs on the place that you live. What if I have an accident i'm trying to rearrange some furniture and i accidentally bump the corner of a table into the wall and i poke a hole in the drywall i've caused some damage now is that something Mm -hmm. that i should tell my landlord right away how should what's the best way to be a good tenant in that situation (laughs) i think it's always advisable to keep your landlord apprised as to anything that happens with the property now if it's uh, you know, I tell people if it's I put a nail hole in the wall and I want to put a little bit of spackle over it, you know, something like that is probably not a big issue. If you took a big chunk out of the wall, it's probably advisable to talk to your landlord, give them an idea of, hey, I'm going to repair it by doing this or do you want to repair it and talk through that procedure. Because typically it's a good idea to at least uh, the 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 biggest issue I see when there are disputes between landlords and tenants is a breakdown in community, other than obviously not paying rent, is really a breakdown in communication. Um, if there's something that a tenant did that is against landlord's expectations or vice versa, um, that's typically when you see disputes between landlords and tenants. But if you're a tenant and there's an issue that comes up that's either your fault or someone else's fault, I think it's always advisable to at least bring it up to your landlord, tell them here's the problem, and then see what they propose as to how the remedy is to fix it. Well, let me take that to an extreme, uh, Ferris' idea of poking a hole in the wall. But suppose, suppose my barbecue pit out on the balcony causes a fire. Mm-hmm. Am I liable for that, or how is that best handled? Well, <laughs> there are provisions for when something ha- happens uh, dealing with a fire or an act of God provision. But let's say, for instance, on your hypothetical that you were the tenant and you were running a barbecue and you got a little bit out of control with, uh, you know, I don't know, the lighter fluid or you were spraying lighter fluid everywhere and you did something negligent <laughs> in which you were the cause of the property damage. Um, as a tenant, yeah, the law would provide that you are probably liable for that property damage. Now, if there's something like a, a lightning bolt that strikes the property and the house catches on fire, that might be something different. But yeah, if you're the tenant and you take some sort of action that it's your fault and you're the cause of, you can be held liable for the damage to that property. That's why it's always advisable too, as a tenant. I mean, 
Obviously, there's homeowner's insurance that protects the property owner, but it's it's usually advisable as the tenant that you want to get renter's insurance as well. Um, it's hard to say whether in that scenario that type of insurance would cover it, but it's usually advisable to have insurance in case uh, weird things pop up on the property that would protect both you and the landlord. What does renter's insurance usually cover? Well, it can cover a, a, a wide variety of things, um, and it's really going to depend on your policy. Um, the biggest thing it covers is obviously if you have stuff within the property, a uh, big flat screen TV or, uh, um, say, a, a really expensive laptop or a nice motorcycle or nice bicycle or whatever it is. The biggest thing that renter's insurance will typically cover is if you have personal property that's either stolen or sometimes damaged. Renter's insurance will will usually step in to make your, you, yourself whole. Um, that's that's the biggest reason why I tell renters to get it. Obviously, the landlord, like I said, they have homeowner's policy, which can cover a, a whole range of things that are probably a little bit outside of the scope of what we're talking about today. But, uh, you know, I... I as an attorney, you know, part of what we do is we advise people of risk. And when you're talking about risk, it's always a good idea to get different types of insurance. We always advise people that it's a good idea. Can, so can, it's no, no different here. <laughs> can landlords require renters to have insurance? They can. Yeah, absolutely. Is that something that would be part of the rental agreement? I know that you mentioned early on that you have these certain protections that are laid out in law, but that the rental agreement can expand on those. Yeah, that's exactly right. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into common English. Judge? Legalese. I hope that listening to today's program on landlord-tenant law will give us all a new lease on life. But a dictionary told me that the cliche lease on life has no connection to an actual lease. The cliché means that your life has been changed for the better after recovering from an illness or discovering a new opportunity. A lease, in today's legalese, is simply a contract for you to get the use of something, a home, apartment, an office, or a car or other equipment, as examples, for a fixed period of time and requires you to make payments. The person who owns the property she is leasing to you is the lessor. You, the person getting use of the property, are the lessee. A lease usually is a written contract. If you break a lease, the consequences will be similar to breaking any other contract. You may owe money to the landlord. You can, of course, rent an apartment or a house without a written lease. There is not a written contract binding you if you do that, but you will be obligated to make payments on a monthly schedule that you and the landlord have orally agreed to. The landlord, the lessor, can raise the rent or end your time in the property on that month's notice if it is a month-to-month agreement. Prudent landlords and car and equipment leasing companies require written leases. These spell out your obligations as lessee. These obligations may, of course, come back to haunt you. So read the lease. You know, look before you leap. Look before you lease. Legalese. In Missouri, we've got a couple different chapters that deal with landlord and tenant rights and obligations. Those are what I call the default provisions. So if you don't have an agreement, you can have an oral lease in Missouri where you've not talked about any of the landlord's obligations to the tenant and vice versa. 
Um, so I, Missouri provides that there are a couple different chapters that uh, give what I call default provisions. So if you've not actually talked about it and not actually agreed about certain areas of the law, the law is going to imply a default provision into your agreement. But other, other than those handful or few more default provisions in your lease, uh, the really interesting area of landlord-tenant law is landlords and tenants or whomever, whether it's commercial or, or residential, can agree to virtually whatever they want as long as it's not contrary to public policy. So if you're a landlord and you want to require that a tenant uh, obtain renter's insurance or something like that, as long as it's not violating some other Missouri statute, which uh, landlords absolutely can require renter's insurance, as long as it's not violating some statute, you can. it's only governed by the lease. So it's whatever the parties agree to is going to be the nature of the relationship. Um, so uh, usually the answer to, well, what can my landlord do or is it fine for my tenant to do that or is it legal for my landlord or for my tenant to do X, Y, and Z, the answer to that question is usually going to be, I don't know, what does your lease say? Um, that's the biggest que- that's the biggest answer that I give to both landlord and tenant clients that I see. I suppose it's a good idea to know exactly what's in the lease. For example, who pays for the utilities? Who pays for the garbage removal? Uh, what, uh, that, what? That's exactly right. <laughs> uh, it's always a good idea to, especially if you're a tenant, um, to read the lease thoroughly before you sign anything. There are all sorts of provisions, and I know sometimes you know you don't take the time to go through all of the pages of the lease, but it's advisable. It's also advisable to you know if you have the the opportunity and the money to have an attorney look over the lease. <laughs> but when you're dealing with that type of thing, uh, there are some things that obviously the landlord's not going to budge on, but there might be some things that can be a topic of discussion and can be a topic of negotiation, like what we talked about earlier. You could maybe negotiate the amount of the security deposit. And it's important that you read and understand, if especially if you're a tenant, what is in that lease before you sign it. Because I see disputes all the time that arise because, you know, either a landlord or a tenant doesn't think something is fair. And they come to me and I look at the lease and I say, well, the lease specifically re- requires or provides that you can do X, Y, and Z. And you just didn't read it or didn't know that that was in your lease. So as a tenant, it's always advisable to read the lease before you sign it. As a landlord, I tell all of my landlord clients, it's a good idea before you have a standard lease to either have an attorney draft it or if you have one already to have an attorney review it. Because there are some provisions that are just must-haves if you're a landlord to protect your rights against all sorts of different things that a tenant might do to your property. Do landlords have the right to conduct background checks or credit checks as part of the process of selecting who they'll rent to? Sure, absolutely. Um, as long you have the right to conduct any background check or credit check that you want to, so long as you're not violating any other provision of law. You know, if you're not discriminating against someone, say on the basis of race or or whatever it may be, but just a general background check. Um, I always advise my landlords it's a great idea to check CaseNet. If you're not familiar with Missouri CaseNet and you're a landlord, you need to get to know it. Um, because I see, te- you know, if I've seen it once, I've seen it uh, 30, 40 times where a landlord will come to me and say, I don't know what happened. They've been here 
four months and they haven't paid rent for three and they've been an utter terror. I need to get them out. And then I look on CaseNet and I see that that person's had five other lawsuits filed by prior landlords against them. And I, you know, the biggest thing I tell landlords is you should have done your due diligence ahead of time to figure out whether that person was a good tenant and whether that person was someone that you'd want to rent to. Had you have at least looked at CaseNet, you probably would have figured out uh, maybe that's not someone that I want to rent to because they're they're a terrible tenant and they consistently don't pay rent on the property. But you'd be surprised how many people just don't take that simple step of of looking up the people who they lease to. Well, that raises a little bit broader question in terms of a landlord's rights. What if I were a landlord? What are my rights in determining whether I want to rent to somebody? Is there? I, I know there are probably some some things that. To say I can't refuse them because of this, but what am I allowed to refuse to rent my property to for people? Sure, and the, and the answer is just about anything as long as it's not uh, uh, violative of some other portion of law. So if someone is disabled, obviously you can't refuse to rent to someone on that basis. If someone is a different race than you, you can't refuse to rent to them on that basis. Um, other than common law, other than statutory protections that we have that that you know prevent you from discriminating on certain bases, if you just you know there is no other requirement that a landlord has to rent to someone. Certainly, if someone has. Uh, the inability to pay for the rent, that's a big indicator that you shouldn't rent to that person, and there's nothing that requires you as a landlord to do that. If somebody has a criminal record coming out of prison, does that automatically disqualify <laughs> them or limit them in opportunities that they might have? It does not automatically disqualify them, and that's a really, really delicate issue of the law, um, especially when you're dealing with subsidized housing like HUD, HUD Section 8 properties, things of that nature. Um, there are some memorandums that deal with um, how when you're dealing with someone who has a prior criminal history, um, whether that individual can be de denied housing on that basis. That's a really, really complicated area of the law that a lot of attorneys even struggle to, <laughs> to comprehend. If you are, and here's my biggest advice for, t for today on that, if you are dealing with someone that you're wanting to, especially if you're dealing with someone in a, a, a HUD property or a Section 8 property, that you want to refuse to rent to them on the basis of a either a prior criminal conviction or prior criminal behavior, you really do need to talk to an attorney about that beforehand. Because there, there's, there's not really a bright line rule on that, which attorneys really like. It's more of a balancing test on what was the crime, what were they convicted for, how long ago was it, and what's happened in the meantime. And that's really a balancing test that you need to go through with your landlord before you decide to exclude your property on that basis. What if I am someone who've applied to rent a property, but I think I'm being discriminated against, maybe because I'm young and they said something along the lines of they think that I'm going to play music really loud, like the last young tenant they had, or it could be something more serious, like um, race. Um, what mm -hmm. what op options do I have if I think I am being discriminated against? Well, if you do think you're being discriminated against, and you know, this is the answer I feel like I've given a handful of times, but you really do need to talk to an attorney. Um, there are 
depending on what the basis of the discrimination is, there are sometimes administrative remedies that you have to exhaust before you actually go through the formal legal system. Um, that's a really complicated area and, and specified area of law, too. Um, I don't handle a whole lot of issues related to discrimination, but there are a bunch of attorneys out there who that's all that they do, whether that's, you know, you're discriminating against someone who definitely want to contact them to navigate at the very least the administrative hurdles that you have before bringing a claim. If, if I am approached by a disabled renter who wants to rent my property, do I have any obligation to make that property uh, accessible or usable by that disabled person? Typically, you will. Uh, typically, I mean, if you're going to rent, if you end up renting to that person, there's typically a, uh, an obligation of the landlord to make that, uh, to reasonably accommodate the disability. Now, what a reasonable accommodation is, is a very spe- fact-specific inquiry. It's going to be different for every every disability and, and every accommodation as to what it means for there to be a reasonable accommodation. And that's a really difficult and complex area of the law, too. But, you know, if there is, is, if there is something that's, that the, the individual is asking for that you think is probably going to be a reasonable accommodation, it's probably safe to say if you're a landlord that you should, uh, you should accommodate for that. Is there any advice that you would give to both landlords and tenants on how to have a positive or happy <laughs> experience in, in this type of agreement? Yeah, so uh, like I said earlier, probably my biggest advice to both sides is good communication and good record keeping is always the key to a healthy landlord-tenant relationship. Um, As far as the tenant side is concerned, reading and understanding what your obligations are under the lease is probably the biggest thing. You know, that goes from... Everything from where do I pay my rent to when do I pay it to where do I have to set the trash outside to where can I park my car. It's always good to read and understand what your obligations are under that lease rather than assuming or or making other issues when you're dealing with your landlord. Um, As far as landlords are concerned, like I said earlier, my biggest advice to landlords is to check CaseNet. Um, figure out who it is that you're renting to beforehand, whether they've had previous rent and possession actions brought against them. All of that stuff is good to know. Um, I have landlords come to me all the time and say, "What you know? what's the best way to avoid dealing with a messy eviction? And I say, really, the only way to avoid dealing with a messy eviction is that you need to get a good tenant in place. That's the only advice that I can give because once it gets to the point of you have to hire an attorney to file a lawsuit, things have already deteriorated so much that it's really going to be difficult for you to come back from that. And the only real way I can guarantee to keep from dealing with that messy situation is find a good tenant. So that's my biggest advice to landlords. That and, you know, my other advice to landlords is, Make sure you have certain key components within your uh, within your lease that protect you in the event things do go south, in the event that you do have to evict someone from your property. Now, you've talked about landlords being able to check up on the background of potential tenants. Are there any sources for potential tenants to check up on landlords? You know, that's a good question. Um, there's no, to my knowledge, 
and there might be, I just am not aware about it, a database for tenants to check landlords out. But Google is always a good place to start. Um, a lot of landlords will be present with the Better Business Bureau's website. You can obviously look there. Um, other than that, I also tell tenants, you know, just like I gave landlords advice, check CaseNet on your tenants. Um, it's also a good idea if you're a tenant to check CaseNet on your landlord. If your landlord's the type who is constantly getting in disputes with tenants and filing lawsuits or has been sued by tenants for you know, whatever it is, breach of the warranty of habitability or whatever, it's good to know that as a tenant, too, because you want to know what kind of landlord you're dealing with. So, absolutely, it's good advice for a tenant to check up on your landlord, too. Uh, Google and CaseNet are usually a good place to start. Good advice. <laughs> You've been listening to uh, Is It Legal To, a podcast of the Missouri Bar. We're glad to have had Austin Fax with us, a lawyer from Springfield, who walked us through the rights and responsibilities we have as renters and as landlords. Austin, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. If you're wanting even more information on this, we invite you to visit MissouriLawyersHelp.org, where you can find our Consumers and the Law Resource Guide that includes a chapter on the landlord-tenant relationship. You can also find a lawyer to help you with your landlord-tenant issues through our Lawyer Search feature, where you can type in your location and the subject area, which is landlord-tenant, and help find a lawyer that's accepting new clients in this area. While we've been talking about today's laws when it comes to renting property, it's important to look at how those laws stem from our constitutional rights and liberties. Tony Simons, the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, shares how the landlord-tenant relationship impacts our Constitution. People are sometimes surprised at just how far constitutional principles extend into our lives, having relevance for many of the transactions and relationships that make up our daily existence. Take today's topic. I'm sure many would question how the Constitution could possibly have meaning for something as routine as the relationship between landlords and tenants. But we should never underestimate the applicability of constitutional ideas. Once again, the concept that applies to our situation is due process of law. The principle that if government deprives individuals of life, liberty, or property— it must do so in a manner consistent with constitutional safeguards, individual liberties, and the ability to challenge government action in a court of law. Let's start with landlords. The apartments, houses, or lands that they rent out to tenants are property. That means that government efforts to regulate the landlord's use of their property must be done in a manner consistent with due process of law. Now, this doesn't mean that landlords get to take a position of, it's my property, I will do with it what I want. The government can prohibit landlords from discriminating against individuals based upon race, gender, religion, and national origin, among other factors. The courts have consistently recognized the legitimacy of this restriction. Similarly, Courts have recognized that residential leases include an implied warranty of habitability, obligating the landlord to guarantee that the dwelling is habitable and fit for living at the inception of the lease and that it will remain so during the entire term. This is a significant departure from the old common law, where if someone were gullible or desperate enough to rent an uninhabitable structure, the law would offer them no protection. As one 19th century judge wrote, there is no law against leasing a tumble-down house. 
The implied warranty of habitability prevents this from happening in today's world. However, sometimes government takes regulation of landlords a step too far. Recently, the city of Seattle enacted an ordinance establishing a first-in-time requirement. Landlords were told they had to establish screening criteria for potential tenants and then required to rent the property to the first person who met the criteria. A Washington court ruled this requirement to be unconstitutional. The court wrote, Choosing a tenant is a fundamental attribute of property ownership, and the state could not deprive landlords of this ability without just compensation. Due process is based upon the idea that even when the government is doing something noble, it is not empowered to do anything it wants to achieve this goal. In this case, the Washington court recognized that the governmental purpose was a worthy one to combat implicit bias by landlords. However, the method the government chose to achieve this worthy goal exceeded its legitimate power and authority. Now, let's move to the rights of tenants. An oft-repeated, although legally dubious, refrain is, you don't own the property, you only lease it. Therefore, the Constitution does not protect you. The United States Supreme Court has adopted a different approach, ruling the right of a tenant to continued occupancy of his home is a traditionally recognized right. Even though a tenant does not own the property that is leased, that tenant still possesses legal rights and is due legal protections. This was stated most eloquently and forcefully by Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas, who wrote, Modern man's place of retreat for quiet and solace is the home. Whether rented or owned, it is his sanctuary. Being uprooted and put into the street is a traumatic experience. Legislatures can, of course, protect property interests of landlords. But when they weight the scales as heavily as does Oregon for the landlord and against the fundamental interest of the tenant, they must be backed by some compelling interest. While Justice Douglas never missed an opportunity to wax philosophic about the rights of the poor and oppressed, even he would recognize an essential truth. Due process of law does not give tenants the right to refuse to pay their rent or to relinquish the property when the term of the lease is at an end. It just means that the attempt to evict tenants must be completed in a manner consistent with the principles of due process of law. I've always believed that our constitutional system is at its best when it endeavors to achieve fairness. You can see this at work in the case of landlord-tenant law. Our legal system recognizes and protects the rights of landlords to control and earn income from their property. At the same time, our system acknowledges the right of those who rent to an inhabitable space and to be treated appropriately. This topic demonstrates it is the Constitution's relevance to the everyday activities of people that underlies its authority and relevance. Nothing further, Your Honor. Yeah. 
The more you know about the laws that impact your daily life, the better decisions you'll be able to make about your life, your family, and your finances. I'm Farah Fight. And I'm Bob Pretty. Join us for another episode of the Missouri Bars podcast, Is It Legal Too? A regular look at our legal system and you.